names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own songs so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 67, Dead or in Prison. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we're back in Durham, North Carolina. And it's kind of jarring to be in the Piedmont again all of a sudden. Yeah, but we came back, I think, just at the right time as the weather was cooling off and um, the mountains were beautiful, but we got rained out one too many times, just like rain upon rain, and we were we were kind of ready to come back. And bear hunters and hunting dogs pissing in our, our camp chairs, <laughs> and yeah, it was time to go. Being stuck in, stuck in the van with really not much that we could do. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. No movies, nothing. Uh, we listened to our pod, our own podcasts until yeah. the battery ran out. Yeah, and I apologize to everybody. I don't know how you listen to this crap. <laughs> um, so this episode, Dead or in Prison, is going to talk about the Black Panther Party. And when I was doing my little research thing online, I came across another it was like on a youtube channel but it was a podcast it was just like the audio and um i guess i didn't listen to it they were talking about the black panther party but then i saw like it was a bunch it was like four white women or something and i was like man i don't want to learn about the black panthers from some white women and then i was like wait <laughs> I am a white now you got a couple honkies to white explain yeah. it for you so um just know that the the Black Panther Party interested me um, enough to learn about it, and I hope that some of this information is uh, will do the same for you, and I encourage you to um, do your own looking into stuff. Yeah, until fairly recently, I had a negative uh, view of the Black Panther Party because all I knew about it was like uh, – watching Forrest Gump, you know, where they're depicted as really militant, kind of in your face and like telling you all this stuff. And, um, they just seem like that, like assholes. And now I realize like, that's how the media wants us to remember the Black Panther Party. Cause the more I started learning through, uh, reading about them through, uh, the book, Deep Green Resistance, and then, um, mostly Teresa's research these past few weeks, um, I really, uh, admire them. Um, but, yeah, that's all I want to say right now. But, yeah, wow, I have such a uh, elevated opinion of them now. All right, so um, I'm going to start painting this picture a little bit. Um, there was something called the Second Great Migration out of the southern United States of black people. And the reason why, um, probably not surprisingly, is that despite the Civil War being over and decades of uh, um, black people, you know, either being sharecroppers or possibly doing like um, some sort of like unskilled labor, uh, they were not being treated very well. And the Ku Klux Klan uh, was very strong and uh, would often intimidate and or murder black people. Um, so, so many black people decided to go to places in the north of the United States or the west. And this was around like World War II? Yeah, it was. It was somewhere in like the 30s, 40s-ish, 50s. 
And um, it was basically, you know, black people trying to get better jobs, trying to get away from the harassment of the Ku Klux Klan. And unfortunately, what they found was systemic racism, um, as that word is bandied around uh, these days so much. Like, racism is systemic. It's like, well, it is. You're right. You're absolutely right. And here's an example. So when there were black people coming into big cities because they were trying to find jobs so that they could support their families, um, they would uh, the black people would often start like kind of in the inner city, and the black the white people were like ah black people. <laughs> um, and this, remember this is not in the the south now, so uh, you can um, put away your higher moral ground if you're from the north or from the west. And so white people would would do something called white flight, and they would move to the suburbs of the big city. (laughs) We've seen white flight. They do it to hobos, too. Yeah. (laughs) And um, the other thing is that city planners were noticing the influx of blacks, and they were like, ah, we know exactly what to do. We will kind of force the black people to be in one area of the city, and we'll make it difficult... Uh, for example, like the design of roads, of highways and interstates, will make it really difficult for them to get out. And um, so that they can just kind of stay like in the south side of Chicago or the south side of, you know, L.A. or Oakland or whatever. So um, that was another way that uh, black people were greeted as they were trying to escape um, persecution in the south. Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and a a handful of others were the founding members of the Black Panther Party. And many of the founding members had grown up in the South, whether it was Louisiana or Missouri or or places like that. And their families were poor, but again, the Great Migration, they all kind of ended up in... um, in and around Oakland. You look like you have something to say. Uh, well, a couple of things. I know I was distracting you just now by looking at the iPad. I've never seen that little orange dot there before. I don't know what that means on our iPad. And the other thing is I was just surprised mm-hmm. that Missouri is considered the South. Yeah, I would say. Um, maybe just, like, culturally, not so much geographically. Mm. But at any rate, the um, the members, the founding members of the Black Panther Party Huey Newton and Bobby Sealer are basically known as, like, the co-founders. They had actually created something called the Soul Students Advisory Council um, that was kind of like the, the precursor. Um, it was described as ultra-democracy, individualism manifesting itself as aversion to discipline. And its goal was to develop, to develop a college campus group that would develop leadership and then go back into the black community and serve the black people in a revolutionary fashion. But some other things were going on too. Malcolm X, um, a huge influence to Huey and to Bobby, uh, was assassinated February 21st, 1965. Um, there were also the Watts riots um, in uh, in California in 1965, and I. I just happened to have a page from our U.S. president's exposed uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And when talking about the black riots in L.A. Um, in 1965, he feared that, quote, Negroes will end up pissing in the aisles of the Senate. 
<laughs> I don't remember or recall reading um, that Negroes ever pissed in the aisles of the Senate, but uh, the Black Panthers sure did take their message to the state capitol of California uh, with loaded guns. So <laughs> maybe he was... Uh, oh, that Lyndon. Oh, LBJ. He's such a card. So, yeah, so um, these things were happening. Um, there was also a death, basically kind of like a death threat or suicide letter sent to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, before he received his Nobel Peace Prize, and that was from the FBI. So there was a lot of shit happening to black leaders that really influenced uh, this Black Panther Party to come about. Yeah, that letter, didn't it say, like, you have however many days, and that was the amount of days until he received the the Nobel Peace Prize? So they're basically telling him, like, you better kill yourself before you receive this prize. Yeah, because we have information on you. Like, we've got your number, Mm -hmm. MLK. Yeah, and I see that as, like, a reoccurring theme that I'm sure you'll get back to with the Black Panther Party and Martin Luther King is I'm reminded over and over is how all these people are human. So we've all got dirt, oh, you yeah. know, and then it's it's so easy for them to spin it and like, oh, look at this villain. He cheated on his wife. He did this. He did that. He got hooked on drugs, whatever. And uh, just to act like the rest of us, you know, don't have dirt that could be dug up when they want to use it against us. And, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the COINTELPRO uh, from J. Edgar Hoover and how that basically ended up ruining the Black Panther Party. That might be a whole episode in itself somewhere down the road. Oh, this this time in history, like the even the late 50s, the 60s, and, and throughout the 70s is fascinating. And, yeah, I feel like we could do so many podcasts, whether it's, like, on the FBI or the CIA or just, like, um, protesters and, and riots and everything. Why do you say it's fascinating? Well, for one, I don't know that much about it because in my education, it, it like, these things weren't brought up. I didn't learn about the Black Panther Party. I didn't know about the White Panther Party. I didn't know about any of this shit. So it's coming to my eyes for the first time fresh. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, wow, I'm getting into some stuff that, for whatever reason, our public school system did not want us to know about. Yeah, that's the part that, like, when I'm learning about this stuff we're talking about, like COINTELPRO, MKUltra, the CIA, like, I've been looking around my whole life thinking, this is crazy. How did we get here? Where does this come from? And to start delving into this stuff, not only does it blow my mind that I start finding, like, the lineage, like, the stories of where it, it came from, but how much of it is on purpose? Mm-hmm. That's the part that I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, that, like, these things that we have, these feelings that we have, these thoughts that we have and don't have, this information that we don't have or that's blatantly wrong is all on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's all by design. Yeah, I'm still trying to put my brain back together after, like, finding out what we found out through all this research with the presidents and now the Black Panthers. <laughs> Yeah, things just start fitting together, and you're like, oh, my God. And it's just going on. And the Freedom of Information Act, as well as some other um, happenings in history, have blown the lid off of what the government was doing. And yet, here we are, coming up to election time, and we're just like, oh, I'm going to go to the polls and vote, and I'm going to do my part. Fuck you. You're not doing your part. This shit needs to go. Whoa. Uh, that that was Black Panther in me. Um, so, yeah. So, 
along with uh, these black, the leaders of the black community um, being assassinated, being uh, intimidated, and uh, and just riots happening because of the unjustness of our systemic racism in this society. Um, I was also going to mention one other uh, something that was happening or something that happened September 27th, 1966. We're just coming up on September 27th. Um, there was an unarmed 16-year-old black young man named Matthew Johnson who was shot by a police officer. That was 1966. How many years has it been? The same shit is going on. Mm-hmm. Again. And again and again. At least with the Black Panthers forming. Um, and by the way, the name of the Black Panther Party, it was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Founded October 15th, 1966. Yeah, I love the way they recognize the same problem we're recognizing now with, uh, you know, George Floyd and so many others. And how they address that. Um God, the organization of these founding members of the Black Panther Party um, to just go and and decide, like, we're going to carry guns, we're going to show up, and uh, we're just going to make sure it doesn't happen. We're not out there to, like, throw a temper tantrum or to vandalize anything. We're out there to abide by our constitutional rights and make sure this shit stops happening. We're going to protect our people. And I love that. I mean, it's so definitive. It's so... uh, rational. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, this needs to stop. We're going to stop it in a way that actually can, could stop it. But yeah. And you know, like what was the main reason the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was founded? They wanted to advocate for the right of self-defense for black people in the United States. Remember, Ku Klux Klan is still intimidating and murdering black people as well as people who are um, supporting black people and other people of color. Like I said, they were influenced by Malcolm X heavily. They were also influenced by um, communist uh, writings, whether it was Mao Zedong and the Little Red Book or um, Karl Marx and and many others. Now, But let me just say this before you... Okay. They believed that violence or the threat of it might be needed to bring about social change. And Huey Newton had studied pre-law, so he knew, or at least he knew how to find out what the laws were to use them in their favor. He sought to educate those around him about the legality of self-defense because he believed that black people lacked the knowledge of how these social institutions could be made to work in their favor. In other words, black people had no idea what their rights were, and I feel like not just black people, but a many many of us today don't know what our rights are. Okay. All right. I've got a question. I don't know if you have the answer, and I'm trying to figure out a way to word this that doesn't make me sound like a racist, okay. even though there might be racist undertones. I don't know. Um, but I've known a lot of black people and a lot of white people in my life, and it's rare to run into a white person who's like, studied the law and read the Communist Manifesto, going to all their fancy, you know, schools and everything, much less a black person that has done these things. Yeah. Where the hell did these guys come from 
that they were studying like this? What was their background? Were they like they coming out of an Ivy League college no, or, or well to do they prison actually, or what? They actually went to um, I think I know Huey did. I am not sure if I think Huey and Bobby met at Merritt College and it was like a junior college. So I'm not sure if that's considered like a community college or a technical college, but um, it was pre-law, so it wasn't like going to Yale or something like that, but um, it was like, what am I trying to say? It was, I think, a, what the hell, I'm trying to think of this word, deliberate uh, study because they saw how it could be helpful in their community. I don't think, I, I, I have the impression that Huey wasn't really going to become a lawyer. Yeah, wow. I mean, like I think about Andrew Johnson, and like one of the things he said was that the black man is incapable of governing himself. They're basically barbarians. And uh, I remember what I said in that that episode was, uh, I mean, obviously that's been debunked so many times over. <laughs> look at Look at Obama. But I picked the wrong guy. Fuck Obama. Like, look at these guys. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, they came, their families were not rich families. They left basically everything they knew in the South, including the KKK. But they ended up, you know, coming to another area of the country where it was, they were still segregated. There there were still uh, sentiments like, I don't want to live around black people. People will just like, if they saw a black person move into their neighborhood, white people would immediately put their house up for sale. They didn't even care like how much they got for it. They were just like, oh shit, the value of my house is going down, <laughs> white flight. So yeah, these these guys were not coming from a place of, of privilege. They were coming from a place of necessity. <laughs> now we have gentrification, so it's reversing, but in an equally destructive way. Yeah. Um, so they formed the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And... They wanted to recruit the men on the street corner, the men who were gang members, the men who were pimps, the men who were out of prison. Yeah, that was a question I asked Teresa earlier because I read uh, SNCC, um, the new abolitionist. Do you remember what SNCC stands for? Student, I think like student nonviolent committee or I, I don't know. Yeah, it was mostly black people. Um, some white people helped out. But basically, uh, um, among the many things they were doing is they go into the deep south and try to convince black people to vote because black people were kind of allowed to exist, but you don't go and vote. You just keep your head down, you shut up, and you, you hope you don't get messed with. And so it was really hard for them to convince people to vote. <laughs> and so I'm asking Teresa this morning, like, how the hell did this one group struggle to get people to even stand in line to vote while over <laughs> here these guys are recruiting people to pick up guns and show up where the cops are? I mean, that was that still blows me away. Like, I imagine myself trying to, like, get a movement started. Where the hell would I go? Where do you find people willing to do that? Um, I got to think it's a combination of... Th- the time, the people that, like you were talking about, these people he was going to that maybe, like, were street fighters. I mean, they already knew how to kind of carry some weight because they've been in dangerous situations over and over and over, maybe their whole damn life. And the other thing that that makes me think is how extraordinary these men are, what they must have said, how they could rally people. Oh, yeah. I mean, holy crap, what a gift. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about my lily white ass and like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Oh, <laughs> are you sure we should be here? She's giving me a dirty look. Oh, I think we should get out of here before we get in trouble. White flight. Um, so the guys that Huey and Bobby were targeting, they weren't um, the college campus uh, anymore. They abandoned that idea. They were like, no, shit, we need to take this to the streets because we have a right to carry loaded weapons in public, not concealed, and we have a right to observe arrests and other activities of the police. So they called it cop watching, but basically it was patrolling the police and making sure in their neighborhoods, their black neighborhoods, that they were not getting beaten, brutalized, murdered by the cops. And Teresa, I'm not sure how you have your notes organized. I'm kind of hesitant to jump in with comments because I don't want to like mess up your your flow. But yeah, it makes me think of some of the the speeches, the talks Teresa and I were listening to to study up for this podcast. Um, The language they used was, we don't want um, whites occupying our neighborhood. It wasn't like, you know, big signs that went up like whites stay out or anything. It was that you don't run this neighborhood. This is a black neighborhood. And that's something I found really instructive because what we're taught as white people, what I was taught is it is segregation, keep the white people separate from the black people and the white people get all the good resources and screw the black people or desegregation. That's the good thing. Let's bring us all together. One world tribe. We're all the same. But what that really means is let's indoctrinate everybody else to be just like the white people. Mm. I love that these guys are doing neither. I mean, it's sort of like their own form of segregation, but in a different way. It's it's we want to be around black people. This is a black neighborhood. We're strong together. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need our white benefactors giving us welfare checks, organizing all this shit, telling us what to do. And we damn sure don't need white cops coming in trying to make our neighborhoods safe. Safe for who? For us? We're the ones getting shot by you assholes. So I love that. I love that there's this third option that, like, that's another thing that I was not taught, that segregation is not always a bad thing. It can be an empowering tribal thing. If it is allowed to be. Yeah, if it's not a keep out, you know, I think that's the difference. Are you segregated because one group has all the goods and they're saying you can't get any? Or are you segregated because you are strong among your people and you don't need what those other people have? You can do it yourself. Yeah, that self-determination spirit. That was the same thing that the American Indians wanted, the indigenous people. They were like, let us live and support our communities as we want and as we can. And the government just was like, no, 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 we would rather have you be wards of the state because yeah. it would be easier for us to like persecute you. That's an old page out of the white colonizers playbook is, uh, you know, if once we stop attacking you and using violence, then we need to be your benefactors. We can't just let you be strong on your own. No, 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 no. That's going to lead to trouble. Now we need to come in and govern you. I'm going to read the 10-point platform that was written by the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And this was uh, printed in their newspaper, the Black Panther, in their um, print and throughout their speeches because they wanted something that was easy to read. They didn't want to have like this huge, long manifesto. They wanted it so people could look at it and be like, 
I understand the words in that, and I want to do that. Yeah, this blew me away when you read it to me. All right, and then I'll read that um, that other thing later. So the 10-point platform, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Two, we want full employment for our people. <laughs> and I thought it was funny that in one of the speeches they were talking about taking up arms and going out and uh, and and with self-defense in mind, but like taking care of the white people that were fucking with them. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, I got full employment for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we want full employment. Three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. Four, we want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. That was still a problem. I mean, it still is a problem. Hell, we lived in a trailer that wasn't really fit for human beings. (laughs) Um, Five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. And by decent education, they meant the real history of the U.S., the history including the murder of Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans. And this is a hot topic in uh, what we hear on the radio today. I think it's something called like the 1619 Project or 1619. Um, And it's a, I don't even want to say an alternative U.S. history because it is U.S. history. But you have a lot of people, um, uh, how should I say this? that are saying that the left, the um, the liberals, are poisoning people's minds and that we, um, like Donald Trump is saying, like we need to have pro-American, pro-patriotic history and the love for our country and our history. And um, while a lot of times I, I feel like they're beating up on Trump, I also feel like um, maybe this one, he really is like off. In his own la la land. Yeah, I'm I'm always hesitant to get on the Trump bashing bandwagon, not because Trump's a good guy, but because I feel like the implication, the way people use it, is Obama, Clinton, you know, like all these other guys were good guys, and then Trump came along and was the problem, and that's what I resist. But I will say, kind of what you're saying, that lately the snippets of speeches that we've been hearing from Trump, of course, this is on NPR. Yeah. They're getting – not only I've noticed the content is getting darker and scarier as far as like <laughs> – I mean the propaganda. But have you noticed the way he's talking is different? He almost sounds like a priest. Yeah, he a, sounds like he's trying to hypnotize people. Yeah, it's got this kind of like – I don't know. Like it's it's really some scary shit. Like he – I feel like he's like going further to the dark side. And it, again – not just because he's Trump, but because our whole fucking cultural history has led here. It's just Trump is this step, this part <laughs> of the story, yeah. and it's a scary part. So there's been um, schools in – I'm imagining California, but um, elsewhere too that I heard about that are uh, – they have adopted this 1619 curriculum to teach for American history. And I heard that Donald Trump uh, was saying like if any school is teaching that – I'm going to look into like pulling their federal funding um, because he doesn't support that. And to that, I say, you know, if it's if it's the history of this country, whether it's you know considered ugly or considered like unpatriotic, 
we have a right to know that because if we don't know history, how are we going to not repeat the same mistakes? All right, moving on. Number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. And keep in mind, this is around the Vietnam War. Um, so you've not only got uh, persecution of blacks, you've got persecution of browns and yellows and reds and all of this is going on and they're like hell no i want to fight yeah i like the way uh, muhammad ali worded it you know like no vietnamese ever called me nigger like yeah. if i'm gonna fight a war i'm gonna fight it here and something that's interesting too um this is north korea not vietnam but um the black panthers also named as one of their influences the north koreans i think it's pronounced juche ideals and that, again, was like self-determination, um, being able to take care of yourself. So all of these countries that we're invading and we're sending people over to die, and I guess you could read into that black people over to die en masse, these places are trying to live how they live. And we're going over there and saying, no, that's bad. We, wanna, we want all of your resources and we're going to take them and you're going to now Try to live like us, even though you are going to struggle. You're welcome. Yeah. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Well, hmm. they did not get that, or any of these, really. We want, number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Now, when I read this, I was like, they have fucking lost their minds. You just want to let all the prisoners out? Like, there might be some really bad people in there. But then I thought about it. Number nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. And then I, after I read that, I was like, let me go back to number eight. Because what have we done systemically had white jurors convict black, mostly men? Yeah, Teresa and I got into kind of a philosophical discussion over this because it started bringing up the question for me, what does peer mean? Mm. Um, if you have a poor black man and there's wealthy black men on the jury, is that a peer? Uh, if it's all like dirt poor people from the same neighborhood of mixed colors, are those your peers? I'm thinking about uh, my mom's boyfriend is actually doing some landscaping at Michael Peterson. Um, if you're in North Carolina, you've heard about him on the news. I don't know how widespread his story was, but he murdered his wife, basically. And, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Who knows? And he's a educated, wealthy white man. And I'm like, what does it mean to have peers on the jury? If we have educated, wealthy white people, um, but they don't have his background, they don't have his philosophy, they don't have his experience. Otherwise, they would have murdered somebody. <laughs> and if they did, how could they convict him as guilty? So I get what they're getting at, you know, like we want our community to take care of itself, basically, which I totally support. But this whole widespread governance, you know, of like a jury of your peers, how do any of us have peers in this culture? Mm. I mean, like who the hell would they find if I was on trial? Just because they're white, are they supposed to be the people that <laughs> understand me? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is controversial. And uh, I, 
you know, as, as far as like the Constitution, it's just. Yeah, and I just threw that in as a sidebar because yeah. I, th- I thought it was interesting when we were talking about it. But I don't want to derail what you're talking about because I do understand what they're getting at, mm-hmm. which I think is more that tribal, like we can take care of our own. If this person is a problem, who's he a problem to? He's a problem to us. He's in our community, and we can decide that. Well, yeah, and I mean, if you're going to be under the rules and and law of the land, then apply it the way that it is written, not the way that it is interpreted to the benefit of whoever's in power, namely white people. And something else I was going to say about that. Remember the movie that we watched about that guy? He was part of a group that was against the death penalty, and then he ended up on death row. The life of Henry Gale, I think. Or something something like, like that. Yeah. David that, Gale. Or David Gale. That was a really interesting movie. And it made me also think, because, I mean, again, I am not confronted with any of this type of stuff in my life. I don't really have people in jail in my family. I don't really know anybody that's like, well, I mean, we're often breaking laws, but like, we're not getting caught. Hmm. Um, no, we're not. Um, we're not breaking laws. So I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, so to be able to understand, uh, what, you know, having a family member or being in prison yourself is like, and watching that movie, I was like, Whoa, you could really lose your fucking life because someone is misinterpreting all the, the facts. Oh, man, the whole justice system is so fucked because I have never supported the death penalty. And numbers have come out of like how many people are proven to be innocent that have either been on death row or that have like actually been executed. And I used to have that number memorized. I forget. I'm, I've forgotten it now, but it's alarmingly high. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people getting killed. And so the the argument is that at least if they were in prison, you'd, they'd have a longer chance that you – yeah, find out that they're innocent. But I don't agree with this these long incarcerations either, that we're like they're taking our tax dollars and everything just to keep people in cages and feed them for sometimes their entire lives. That seems stupid. The the best like as far as government way of handling the penal system that I've heard of was I think it was in Norway, it was in Michael Moore's documentary, Where to Invade Next, where they actually put them on like an island and they live like human beings. You can't even tell the guards from the prisoners. Everybody's in normal clothes and they're more treated like people who need help, counseling. They're given a healthy place to like recuperate and talk to people from until they're ready to integrate back into society. That came the closest to something that actually makes sense. Because what we have in America is just Stupid isn't the word for it. Completely ineffective. It's actually making the problem worse. Mm. I agree. Because once you're in that environment and you're treated like that, you you start identifying as that, which I think, you know, from what I've heard from a lot of sources is part of a problem in the black community is they start identifying themselves. There was this book I read, Blink, by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm going to not talk too much more. <laughs> but uh, one of the studies they did is if you had to fill out a questionnaire and say your race before taking a test, and they did this test over and over, if black people had to check I'm black before taking the test as opposed to not checking anything at all, they consistently did worse. And so the implications of that are they are being raised to think black people don't do good on tests, even if they don't think they're thinking that. 
it affects them. That's seriously messed up. Yeah, and I think about what that might mean in the wider spectrum of, like, all the black people in prison. Prison itself, how they're treated, you know, like, you're in chains, you're in this orange jumpsuit, you know, just being treated like that. It has far-reaching effects, and it's not improving people. It's cementing a dark identity. Uh, dark not being skin nope. color. <laughs> All right. And this goes for white people, too. One of the things that, you know, we're talking about white people and black people a lot, being an episode about the Black Panthers, but I see the problem as much more far-reaching as somebody who grew up really white, trash, poor, white. So many of these issues are not strictly relegated to black people. Mm-hmm. But The last 10 uh, of the 10 points is basically a summary because, you know, if if you're having a hard time keeping up with these um you're not alone. It's not that they're difficult. It's just like, all right, all right, all right. I agree. Yep. I like that. I like that idea. All right. Here you go. Bring it home. Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. So just covers like basically everything that they said. I like that land is first. (laughs) Yeah. That's another thing Teresa and I have been talking about. It's like a human being is part of the land. You separate a human being from the land like it's a commodity that can be traded back and forth. Like it doesn't matter what land you get stuck on. That's a lie. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. You got to have a relationship with some kind of land. That is your, your biomass, your body growing from that land. That's a powerful thing. And I, I feel like there's a reason why land was the first mm. word in that, that list. Yeah, as much as I am like, oh, I don't really know if, you know, owning land or I don't like the idea of like, you know, private property, but just traveling around, whether it's in the mountains or or here in Durham, it's it's tough. And it's not just having to move. It's not just having, you know, being run off. It's also that... You want to have a connection, and you crave that. And when you can't have that connection, it starts to further dehumanize you. Yeah, like I want to be able to say my land, not in an ownership like I bought it way, but like like I'd say my son, my wife, my parents, my land. And uh, we can't have that as hobos. We haven't found a way to really have that as hobos. And the closest alternative that we can get seems to be like, trying to buy land, and uh, I hate that. I hate that they've rigged the game so utterly that even to begin to have the facade of that sort of deep familial relationship with land, I still have to be underneath them. It's something they have given me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we've got armed black men, mostly men, um, Patrolling the cops in their neighborhood. Self-defense. Not going out and blowing the heads off of cops or or brutalizing cops. It's watching and waiting. There was a quote that Gumby liked from one of the documentaries. I think it was from this documentary called Vanguard. Um, If you look up... If you go to YouTube and you want to check out any of this stuff, if we're talking about documentaries, just type in Black Panther Party in YouTube, and, like, a bunch of stuff will come up. Not Black Panther. Yeah, that is that is a movie, and mm-hmm. R.I.P. Chad... You'll get the Marvel superhero. What was the name, Chadwick or Chad? Boseman. Chadwick, I think. Boseman, yeah. R.I.P. Um, okay, so there was this, this guy, and he was saying, like, in the Black Panther party, like, we would stand back with our weapons, ready to throw down if necessary. 
No one would do anything until a policeman ejected a round in the chamber. Then we would all eject rounds in our chambers, and all up and down the streets, you would just hear the clackety-clack-clack-clackety-clack-clack. And then right after, he, he was describing what they were doing and how they would do it. <laughs> there was that white police officer. Yeah, so it was pretty intimidating. Yeah, it was all very intimidating. It's like, well, no shit. Now the tables have turned. But I love that image. I mean, that's how shit gets done. Can you imagine a couple of white cops pulling over a car full of black people and, like, all these black guys show up on the scene. They're not interfering. They're staying far enough away that, like, you know, the cops can do their thing, but they're watching them. They all got leather jackets. They got berets. They got glasses, and they got guns. The The message is clear. You better not cross a fucking line because we're here to make sure that line doesn't get crossed. And I love that idea, like, cop don't, don't load his bullets. Is his gun? We don't. But, you know, as soon as he... Puts one in the chamber. Click, 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 click. We're all ready. <laughs> I love that further message. Like, all right, you want to escalate it? Here we are. If you're wondering, like, is this even legal or is it still legal to carry a loaded weapon around? I got my mind blown um, just looking at the first few websites that came up on a Google search. Let me first because this episode is already like 40 minutes in. Um, let me I first just say that, as I mentioned before, Huey Newton studied law, and he knew what the laws were at the time in California. Now, interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> when black people started carrying guns, there was an immediate uh, decision made that maybe we should control this. So there was this guy named uh, Don Mulford, and he introduced a bill into the state Senate uh, for California to pass that it would be unlawful for op- for a uh, person to carry a loaded weapon in public. And Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at the time, and he agreed. He was just like, this is just not rational. Like, why should we use guns when we should have people that are, like, really wanting to just, like, resolve problems? Ronald people fucking Reagan. People of good intent. Yeah, people of good intent wouldn't be carrying loaded weapons in the street. Yeah, Ronald Reagan and his good intentions doesn't believe in violence or guns. Yeah, to be fair, he hadn't become president yet. <laughs> um, so, in other words... There was a move to basically take away what the Black Panthers, what their card was. Like, that was their big card. That didn't stop them, though. They decided, all right, we'll switch gears. We're not carrying guns in the streets. Um, Oh, by the way, they actually descended on the state capitol, as I mentioned um, earlier in the episode. In Sacramento, they walked in to the state Capitol House, and they had their loaded weapons. And that caused such a fervor in the media. And that is what really started people wanting to join, because they were like, oh, my God, there are black men coming up in the state house with guns? Oh, man, these dudes are badasses. I mean, like, Samuel L. Jackson badass. <laughs> um So, yeah, so the laws were changed. And, again, interestingly enough, as I was reading about the gun laws, 
There are certain states in the United States where you can absolutely not carry a gun in public. Then there are states where you can carry one type of gun, like a handgun, or in other states, a shotgun in public, um, open carry. Uh, there are some states where you have to have some uh, additional permits for that. Um, and then there are states where you don't have to have any sort of permits, and it, and it does not uh, say that you can't carry any sort of particular gun in public. So I think North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, it seems to me like you can openly carry a gun. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're not a target. You know, like there are consequences to all the actions you, you take. But I'm just saying like, wow, it never occurred to me that I could actually carry a, a loaded weapon in public. And there are also um, there are also places where you cannot, which include like uh, schools, which also include places that serve alcohol. So, but it's interesting too that the National Rifle Association they didn't really have a stance to deregulate gun carrying until the Black Panthers. In other words. The Black Panthers were using the letter of the law to their advantage. The white folk got scared, and they were like, oh, no, we can't be having these motherfuckers carrying guns around, especially in public. So they, they ixnayed that. But what that did was cause all the white people that wanted to have their guns, what do they call it? Stand your ground. Second Amendment rights. They were like, no, wait a second. Does that mean that my rights are going to be affected. And that's when the National Rifle Association started saying like, no, we need to deregulate. We need to have like less gun control. So that then and only then were they supporting less gun control laws. Before that, they were supporting more because of the Black Panthers. And also because prior to the Black Panthers, there were like European immigrants that would carry guns and and the white nativists that were here before them. They didn't like that. Um, and there were also, before that, the Civil War black soldiers that were able to keep their gun after the war was over if they survived. And, uh, of course, there there had to be some sort of rule that, like, black people couldn't be carrying their guns around. Well, Therese, as much as I like talking about guns, you were telling me all these great stories about, like, uh, the, the food programs and uh, right. uh, Bobby going to court and... Uh, you know, that guy, uh, damn, I can't, I'm so bad with names, Fred but that, Hampton. yeah, Fred Hampton, like, I'd like to hear more of those stories. Yeah, I'm getting to that. All right, so guns were kind of like off the table in California, at least. So they started focusing on survival programs. What they called survival programs were feeding the people, whether it was free breakfast programs for children, free groceries for households, like 10,000 bags of groceries, each with chicken and vegetables and like grains for a week. They organized this. And it was mostly the mom and pop stores that helped. Big stores and big chains were like, no, we'd rather, we would rather put our food in the dumpster than help black people and even black children in our community. Um, and what I found interesting is when you said like that they told the black people in those communities that like the stores were doing that. They'd rather throw the food in the dumpster than feed your children and that that had an effect because the community stopped going to those grocery stores, started giving them a hard time. And then a lot of them came around and ended up giving food. 
Some of them did. There was actually a situation where they were busing people to the next nearest grocery store instead of going to the big chain store. They would bus the people from the neighborhoods to the next grocery store that was helping the Black Panthers to shop, and it ended up closing that store down, the, the Safeway. Um, is it raining? So there were so many other programs. I mean, whether it was... T uh, taking elderly people to appointments at hospitals and protecting them from muggers. There were self-defense classes, um, not just for the young, but also for the elderly. Um, there were programs for like everything, like free um, sickle cell anemia testing and research. There were also programs for households like uh, free plumbing assistance and free pest control. Because these were problems in the black community, whether it was like, I can't afford this or this is the best I can afford and it's a bunch of shit and there's like roaches in here. And that's something that I think is really uh, incredible about the Black Panther Party um, that we don't see so much in like movements nowadays is that they weren't just trying to tear something down. We don't hear about like tipping over statues and like, you know, disrupting traffic. We hear about a quiet presence, showing up at places to make sure certain stuff gets done, and then all this constructive stuff, like, we'll take care of our neighborhoods. And uh, you were telling me that um, actually these free school lunches that we have that are provided now... Or breakfast, but yeah. Or breakfast, yeah, were actually started by the Black Panthers. Well, yeah, so the... Here's... This is kind of getting into the COINTELPRO stuff. Um the government was keeping tabs on what they considered black nationalist hate groups. That's what J. Edgar Hoover considered the Black Panther Party, a hate group, um, you know, feeding children. And uh, something that I read in the Deep Green Resistance book we've mentioned before, uh, they were kind of, they were, I didn't really like how they portrayed the Black Panther Party. They were saying, like, they were misogynistic, which they probably were in ways. They were like, you know, this, that, or the other bad stuff. They were ineffective. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't see Deep Green Resistance really doing anything. Yeah, there are parts of the Deep Green Resistance. It sounds like a bunch <laughs> of white people that are trying to, like, be so critical of uh, everybody else and hoping you don't notice how little they're actually doing. They were saying that the free breakfast probably would have been okay had there not been uh, – a feeling that the children were getting indoctrinated with uh, messages about, like, um, what am I trying to say? Black self-determination, the, the pride of black people. And to that, I say, what the hell do you think we're doing in the schools now? You don't think that's indoctr indoctrination? I mean, if you're black and you're going to a public school, um, you're probably feeling like, man, I wish I were white. Yeah, every time you walk in a grocery store, you are being indoctrinated. They have whole uh, think tanks on it to try to manipulate your, your choices and your mood and everything. You're being deeply indoctrinated. So getting back to these free breakfast programs, yes, they were talking to the children about African history, African-American history. They were talking to the kids about, like, you know, their rights, um, their, their legal rights, and politics. They were educating these children while they ate the free breakfast. Weren't the Black Panthers, like, didn't they have their own school? 
Yeah, they had an Oakland community school that actually won an award from the state of California as a model school. Yeah, and we saw footage, and of course, you know, when the camera's there, everybody's on their best behavior, I'm sure, but you got an idea of how things went. And I love, like, there was this one guy that was teaching history, and you might expect, like, oh, you know, like, it might be true history, but it's sort of skewed, like, towards black people. He was talking about Indians. The Apaches. The Apaches. You know, he was teaching, like, really broad, far-reaching history that was, like, acknowledging, you know, these these overlapping layers between cultures. You know, I expected history. I was going to, you know, be hearing about, like, Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and I'm sure that gets taught, too. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't stopping there. He was talking about the Trail of Tears and just, you know, the whole colonial expansion. Mm -hmm. It was really incredible. I wish I would have gone to that school. Yeah, me too. I'd have stood out like a white thumb, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The government looked at the Black Panthers basically as a threat to national security because they were feeding kids. Um, And that's not all of it. I mean, obviously, it's, it's bigger than that. But. Yeah, years after the free breakfast program kind of dissolved, I think it was in like 1971, um, maybe like five years or so later, the federal government, they opened up their free breakfast program for children in public schools. They were like, oh, now look look what we're doing. We're feeding so many more children than the Black Panthers. It's like, you're the freaking federal government. You should have been doing this in the first place. And Jimmy Carter, I remember, as part of my uh, research, ended up defunding quite a bit of that. Mm. Yeah, like while there was so much money in the late 60s and before uh, being thrown at science and NASA and, you know, the space race. And there's people that are starving in our country. The Black Panthers were like, we're doing something about this. And Deep Green Resistance was saying, like, well, had it just been a breakfast program, they probably wouldn't have been on the radar so much. And there's this great quote by Frederick Douglass that uh, we could not find the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, and if you're not familiar with Frederick Douglass, he used to be a slave and uh, in the late 1800s and maybe early 1900s, I'm not sure, but he was very vocal. He was somebody that was like a spokesperson for the black community. Um, And somebody once asked him famously, what should the white people do about the black people? You know, what what do you want done? And his answer was something to the effect of nothing. Yeah, we need exactly. to learn to stand on our own two feet. We need to manage our own business. We don't, we, you know, white people have done enough, <laughs> more than enough. We need the white people to just kind of step back and let the black people handle it. And I love that because no sooner does somebody like Frederick Douglass say that than the Democrats start figuring out like, oh, wait a minute. If we start, you know, being the great white saviors, mm. we've got every black vote in America. Brilliant. This is how we spread our power. So, you know, that that became a tactic. The, the next stage of the colonization of the control of black people and poor people and Indians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I love this Black Panther Party movement because I feel like it's carrying on that same idea that Frederick Douglass voiced. Just stay the fuck out of our neighborhoods. We got it. We got it. Yeah, that self-determination once again. So you were talking, you were asking about, like, when I was going to get to the story about Fred Hampton. I feel like now is a good time. Like I mentioned before, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. There were others, David Hilliard, Eldridge Cleaver. And um, I don't want to go, I I can't go into all the details of what was going on with all the members because it's just, 
too much drama. But I want to focus now on Fred Hampton. He was not one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party. In fact, he was just a young guy. He had also studied pre-law, by the way. And he was, at the age of, I think, like 17, he was like the chapter president of the um, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP in Chicago. And he, through that organization, had made a lot of connections, and he was like an up-and-rising star of, if you want to call it the black power movement, at age 17. Just, I, I don't even know how to comprehend that. At 17, I was just so angsty and worried about my zits on my face. <laughs> this man is trying to rise up so that he can bring other people with him in his community and to have that self-determination and, uh, and preservation of, like, of what's in the community that's unique to the black community. Anyway, I'm, I'm not doing him justice. So Fred Hampton, all right, he's in Chicago. He hears about the Black Panthers, and he's like, that sounds like something I want to be a part of. So he just starts doing his thing in Chicago. He's, like, not really, you know, anything, like, big. But then I, I can't remember if it's David Hilliard or somebody uh, ends up stepping down or stepping away from, like, the, the, the big, like, close-knit group of founders and they're like wow this Fred Hampton guy is doing some good work in fact Fred Hampton was connecting and bringing coalescing groups of Puerto Ricans the young lords young patriots which were basically they were called like hillbilly whites from Appalachia yeah, this is my favorite part of the Fred Hampton story because we saw some footage of him going to a talk. And what was this group of white people called? The Young Patriots. The Young Patriots. And uh, sure enough, it's like country-looking white people, you know, like just sitting in this room. And this black guy with his beret and everything gets in front of him. And he's what – oh, my God. He's got such a gift. He starts finding that common ground like you guys got poor people. We got poor people. We got a common problem. If we come together, we can solve it. And wow, you know, I think about like these fucking fractious movements we have now that that seem to alienate everybody except the the sliver of people that's in that movement. Um, You know, we've got a stupid fucking uh, argument going whether do black lives matter or do all lives matter? I mean, if there was somebody like Fred Hampton, they would be smart enough to think like, well, shit, you know, if that's what's stopping us from coming together... All lives matter. <laughs> or, I mean, I just love how he bridged everything. I feel like that's something that's really missing nowadays. He was a master organizer. Yeah, and, and like at the tender age, like I said, of well, he was 17 when he started really, but by age 20, he was a powerhouse. And by the way, he was the first to use the, the term rainbow coalition um, it was later used by, like, Jesse Jackson, but it wasn't exactly the same and, like, other people. But the Before point, that had the gay o- overtones. Uh, yeah. Um, because he was bringing together, like, the American Indian movement, the Young Lords, like I said, the Young Patriots, and so many others. He wanted... He even, he even brokered deals with street gangs. He was like, stop fighting each other. Let's fight this fight. 
We can take care of all the shit that you guys are fighting over by fixing this systemic problem. Yeah, I thought the Black Panthers when I was younger was a racist group. I thought it was the black version of the KKK. And uh, nobody stands out more in opposition to that idea and demolish that than Fred Hampton to me. He was somebody who definitely was looking for the common enemy. And that common enemy didn't have to do with skin color because he was recruiting whites and everybody. You know, let's make everybody's life better. And I love the way he did it. It wasn't like, you need to step outside of you. you what was it, patriots? Young patriots. You young patriots, you need to become Black Panthers. You need to adopt our slogans. No, he was like, you guys are a strong tribe and you've got a problem. We're a strong tribe. We're the Black Panthers. We've got a problem. It's the same problem. We can form an alliance. We don't have to become each other. And to me, that yeah. makes so much freaking sense. So Fred Hampton got a name for himself, and this is always the downfall of being so great is that you're going to have enemies. And he quickly uh, was an enemy to the U.S. government, and particularly J. Edgar Hoover, who wanted to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of these black nationalists. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was determined to prevent the formation of a cohesive black movement in the United States. And by black movement, this also includes the rainbow coalition of all the colors of people coming together. So with FBI assistance, the Chicago Police Department uh, began to infiltrate the Chicago branch of the Black Panther Party, whose leader at this time had become Fred Hampton. There was an FBI informant that gave the police detailed drawings of the apartment where Fred Hampton and his pregnant girlfriend, she was like almost nine months pregnant, um, as well as some other Black Panther members were going to be. This was actually Fred's bodyguard, it turns out. I heard that in one of the documentaries. William O'Neill, AKA I call him scum. Um, William O'Neill was a black guy. He was, I believe, part of the Ghetto Informant Program, and that is not meant to be racist. That was literally the name of the program by the FBI. Um, they had at least 67 of 7,000 informants infiltrating the Black Panther Party. Yeah, and there's another old game. The, the cops show up, bust you for something, scare the crap out of you, and then say, well, here's your way out. All you got to do is give us some evidence on this other guy. Mm-hmm. So... This FBI informant, um, the story that I read, uh, it, there's so many conflicting details, but I'll just go with this story, all right? So Fred Hampton and uh, the other members of the Black Panther Party, they were out teaching a um, political education class at a local church. They come home late. This security guard has made dinner, and he also made a special drink for Fred that included barbiturates, barbiturates mm -hmm. um, basically drugged his drink. Fred calls his mom and, like, falls asleep on the phone, um, which is strange. He's, he's not usually like that, even though he's been go, go, going for, like, 24 hours straight. So he goes to bed, his pregnant girlfriend next to him. There's a guy in the, in the living room whose name is, I think, Mark Clark. And he's a young guy. He's, like, 18 years old. And he's there as, like, the security guard for the apartment because they know the, all these Black Panther factions, you know, whether it's in Chicago or Oakland, 
anywhere, they know that their lives are in danger. What they're doing, they're going to end up dead or, or in, in prison. prison. Um, hence the name of the episode. Oh. So this guy, Mark, he's in the living room. The police bust in, shoot him in the chest, dead. By the way, uh, I read that his gun went off. He had a shotgun in his lap, loaded. And when he died, after he was shot dead, he had a death convulsion, and the gun went off, not hitting anyone. The bullet went into a wall. That was the only shot fired by any of the members of the Black Panther Party. And he was apartment. posthumously charged with trying to kill a police officer, right? I, I It's really unclear with a lot of these details, but um, let, me, let me read this to you, all right? So... Uh, Mark Clark, the security on on duty, shot. Shot him in the chest, killing him instantly. A death reflex was the only shot fired by the Black Panthers. Fred Hampton was passed out on his mattress next to his almost nine-month pregnant girlfriend. She was forcibly removed by officers while Fred was still unconscious on the bed. Mm. I gotta collect myself. You want me to read it? The officers fired at Hampton, hitting him in the shoulder. They hit him in the shoulder, all right? They didn't kill him. It was overheard by other members of the Black Panther Party who are now like, oh, shit, they're in the apartment. We're in a back bedroom. This is not going to go well. The one police officer said, that's Fred Hampton. Another one says, is he dead? Bring him out. Another police officer. He's barely alive, but he'll make it. Two more shots were fired at point, at point blank range. The police officer shot him in the head twice. And then it was heard. He's good and dead now. Yeah. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. I mean, anybody who's making a difference, you know, it's the same story again and again. They just gun them down like dogs. I think about somebody like Fred Hampton, and if he'd lived another 20 years, my God, we'd all know his name. There were four other members that were shot at and seriously wounded. Then they were beaten and dragged out into the street, upon which time they were arrested on charges of aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers. Each were held at $100,000 $100, bail. They were indicted by a grand jury on charges of attempted murder and armed violence and various other weapons charges. The Chicago Police Department fired somewhere between 90 and 99 shots. The Black Panthers only fired that one, and it didn't hit anyone. No one from the Chicago Police Department was indicted. The FBI informant admitted later his involvement and committed suicide in 1990. So that was the end of someone who could have been, like, what J. Edgar Hoover was afraid of, the Black Messiah. Somebody who could have really collaborated, who was connecting and organizing, and it just, it couldn't happen. 
It could not happen in this country or anywhere else, probably. Yeah, and I think about what we've learned of COINTELPRO, you know, how they really set people up, and uh, not just them, but so many other organizations, how they direct us to think certain ways. And I think about the role models young black people are given nowadays. You know, we got fucking, like, hip-hop stars. We got people with all the bling. We got fucking rude people. We got people that, like, just, you know, have their pants sagging down. And then, like, they're not being taught about Fred Hampton. They're not being taught about taught about these guys who, like, not only have their shit together, but are fucking, like, doing circles around people, you know? I mean, they're, like, just huge forces. And it's not just, like, one, like, black messiah. It's a whole group of these people coming together. Man, every, like, every kid, not just black kids, every one of us should be, like, should have these names in the back of our head just, like, we can whip them out. I mean, these are huge people in our history yeah and sorry for getting so emotional it's just like damn there was this book that i i didn't read i actually gave it as a gift and it was like basically stories in history of like what would have happened if this occurred instead of this like what would have happened if you know i don't know i because i didn't read the book but like what would have happened if like hitler won what would have happened if, you know, such and such won an election instead of this person? What, what would have happened? happened if Fred Hampton exactly. had, brought, had continued with the Rainbow Coalition? Yeah. So, Fred Hampton. Eh. Uh, shortly after that, the FBI, actually, it was another um, FBI-supported Mission, but it was carried out by the first SWAT team, um, which was comprised of the Los Angeles Police Department. <laughs> they used a knockless warrant um, to break in, to bust into the Black Panthers headquarters um, days after the assassination of Fred Hampton. I wrote four hours later. I'm not sure if that was accurate or not, but the, but the SWAT team used tear gas, and this was interesting from a, a documentary that we watched. The members of the Black Panther Party, this guy was saying, like, well, we all smoked back then, so we just took our cigarette butts, like the filters, and mm-hmm. shoved them up our nose to uh, plug our nostrils from the tear gas. So if you're ever around tear gas and you happen to smoke or have some cigarette butts, maybe mm-hmm. that works. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, they were just infiltrated... Um, by the FBI, this counterintelligence program, uh, 245 of 290 COINTEL pro actions were against the Black Panther Party. Can the, you say that number again? 240, 245 of 290 COINTEL pro actions were against the Black Panther Party. Wow. The um, FBI offices all around the country. We just watched a documentary last night on YouTube. It was called 1971, and it was about the break-in of this one FBI office that was in Media, Pennsylvania, and uh, that type of shit would, like, never be able to happen today. Um, and it, no. wasn't by, it wasn't by the Black Panthers. I wouldn't it was, say that. It was by, like, well, not the same anyway. It'd have to be some high-tech. <laughs> but uh, it was, like, this husband and wife that had, like, young kids and... Um, there was like some other people that were just really 
adamant about doing something. Yeah, a bunch of real dorky looking like white people yeah, like that, this, that had just decided like this shit's wrong. Somebody's got to do something about it. And I guess it's us. This guy, like he learned how to pick locks for this mission. And so it was just like he gets there and he's like, oh, shit, this isn't the same lock as what we saw. Like when we did the um, surveillance thing, it's a really cool documentary. You should watch it. 1971. Um but yeah, so they were just kind of like four or five, no, I think it was eight people maybe that were involved in this. And they broke into the FBI office and they stole files and then they mailed them to various media outlets as well as members of Congress. Fucking members of Congress, like they just gave the papers back to the FBI. They're like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Um, and a lot of the media as well. They didn't know what to do. This was almost... I'd imagine unprecedented. It was at the time. They were saying that paved the way for the way they handled things like Watergate. Mm. So the papers were a bunch of shit that a lot of people who were considered like conspiracy nuts or something, they were saying from a long time ago. And here was finally the documentation. Yeah, they were saying they couldn't believe that the FBI had actually written it down and recorded. It was everything they suspected the FBI was doing. And didn't dare hope they'd actually find documentation on. But they had shit about, like, um, the FBI spying on, like, the Boy Scout troops. Women's liberation Women's liberation. Just, like, you know, targeting a lot of people who were not criminals, who were not breaking the law. Yeah. And um, it was – they were saying there was, like, only just a couple pieces of paper that mentioned something about COINTELPRO. There was only, as far as I remember, there was only one instance on one document. One piece of paper. Nobody knew what that meant, so it was almost just kind of lost in the shuffle, like, like oh, what's whatever. COINTELPRO? Maybe it's somebody's name. Yeah, I remember the first time I ran into that word, I thought, it, uh, you know, it didn't, like, jog my interest. Yeah. It looked like, you know, coin. Yeah. Like, maybe this is an economic thing or yeah. something. But, uh yeah, I guess I'll hand the story back over to you. But I, I was trying to remember that how they like somebody just like kind of pulled that thread a little bit. Like, well, I want information on this, and the FBI kept saying, "We don't have any. We don't have any. It's nothing. It's nothing." Mm-hmm. It, that this was the one thing J. Edgar Hoover was the most nervous about getting out this COINTELPRO because what does it stand for? Counterintelligence program. Counterintelligence program. And they used it against Martin Luther King. They used it against the Black Panthers. They used it against a lot of people, um, not just black people, but anybody they saw as a threat to the any, government. Any hippies, anybody, anybody that didn't look like a clean-cut white guy working for the FBI. And the tactics involved a lot of fucking disruption, um, including sending, like, letters to people, like, when they're in prison, that your wife is cheating on you. Oh, you know? yeah. It was always, like, the wife... Um, is cheating on you because that would incite the man, the husband, to commit acts of violence, whether it was murder or torture or what, and then they could get that guy on that charge, and that would be the end of that guy. Yeah, and Huey Newton, you know, he was. Uh, we saw an interview with him. I, I thought he had kind of crazy eyes, like he looked like he looked like a really intense person. And I would imagine when you get under that kind of duress, you know, it's going to bring out the fighter in you. You know, I mean, like walking around with guns, you know, I mean, imagine the fucking cops, the FBI, you know, they're after you. They've already murdered their, your friends. They busted right in and gunned them down. You know, it's only a matter of time before they decide it's your day. What does that do to you? That kind of stress. And then the psychological warfare, yeah. they start fucking with the few people you can trust. Your, your most intimate 
people, they're cheating on you. They're screwing you over. You know, oh my God, what the, the people that didn't crack more, like Martin Luther King, for instance, it's a wonder. Mm. I mean, I, I can't, I would crack. Yeah, um, you were mentioning about like that COINTELPRO, that one word, and it was a journalist, I can't remember his name, but he said like, why? wanted to know more about it. I didn't know what it was. No one knew what it was outside of, you know, the FBI. And so he put in his Freedom of Information Act request, and they kept denying it, so he sued. And the judge, the the court that um, handled his lawsuit, they read the documents, and they said, you, uh, you can release them to him. And those documents that were released provided more words. So then he submitted, you see what I'm saying? Like it was one word and then it was like an avalanche of, well, wait a second, what is Operation Chaos? What is this and that and the, like, oh my God, there are so many programs that are illegal. They're just beyond the scope of what any government agency should be interfering with in like law-abiding citizens' lives. Um yeah, the the COINTELPRO, some of the um, points, the bullets that J. Edgar Hoover signed off on, preventing the rise of a black messiah that was that would be a charismatic leader uniting um, various groups, a.k.a. Fred Hampton, prevent appeal of the Black Panther Party to black youth, prevent militant black groups from gaining respectability in the black community. We must create suspicion with respect to their respective spouses. So this was like an old page out of the playbook, just yeah. like make them jealous and crazy. Actually written in the playbook. Yeah. And so I just want to say a little piece here about, um, you know, Deep Green Resistance and, and all of their bashing of the Black Panther Party. Um, none of us are saints. Huey Newton did some things. Eldridge Cleaver did something. They all did some things. Who the hell knows what the truth is? And who knows how much of it was manufactured, designed by the COINTEL programs of the FBI or COINTELPRO? Mm -hmm. And I know we're going to be wrapping up soon. It's uh, afternoon and it's about time for me to go find a beer. <laughs> but one story I definitely want to make sure that you get on here is uh, talking about Bobby in court. Oh, Bobby Seal. Bobby Seale's still alive, by the way. A lot of the Black Panthers, um, well, the, the founding members, Huey, um, was actually gunned down in a like a drug-related uh, situation in the streets, like a drug deal. He was on like heroin and cocaine um, before he was shot. So, again, you can decide if uh, that sounds like something that may have slightly been orchestrated um, by our government. Um, yeah, so Bobby Seale. Bobby Seale uh, was invited or requested to go to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. Well, actually, that was that other guy, right? I'm saying it. Yeah. By Eldridge Cleaver. Oh, I see. Who was invited to be a part of um, the anti-war protests, to, to, to have a Black Panther Party presence at the protests that were going on at the 1968 Democratic National Conventions in Chicago. Eldridge was on parole for something. I I think it was a murder 
thing? I, I don't remember. Again, you know, it's really easy to write people off like, oh my God, they murdered somebody? They had somebody murdered? What the hell? Like, how can you like talk about these people as if they're all right? Man, the 60s were a fucked up time. And if you had the FBI like infiltrate your life, this is what happens. Shit gets really complicated. Eldridge asked Bobby, can you go in my place? I can't go. My parole officer says I can't leave the state. Bobby says, sure. Grabs some guns, takes them on an airplane, because that was 1968. He gets there, and he had seen on the news before he left that these were like anti-war uh, protests um, in front of the Democratic National Convention because the Democrats weren't doing shit to end the war in Vietnam. So when he talks... He gives a relatively standard speech about, like, you need to take up some guns, you need to keep them at your house, and you need to be ready to defend yourselves. Because remember, that's what the Black Panther Party was based on, was self-defense. It wasn't blowing the heads off, but in self-defense, if you blow a head off, well, then there you go. Um, he was arrested along with seven others who they were charged with inciting riots and crossing state lines. This had evidently been a law that was not really um, pushed and prosecuted until the federal government started seeing that, wow, the country is like, there's a lot of protests happening. Um, so they arrested, actually, Bobby... Seal was arrested for another charge of a possible um, murder in New Haven, Connecticut. So he was in jail for that when he was charged with uh, this inciting a riot at the National Convention. So he was in court, and his lawyer that he wanted to represent him had just gone into surgery for like a gallbladder surgery. It was something, it sounded like it was an emergency and he couldn't be there. Um, the lawyer couldn't be there. So Bobby was like, you know, I don't want this court appointed lawyer. I will represent myself if we can't postpone this trial. Because the judge was like, you know, we can't postpone it. And the judge also said, no, you can't represent yourself. You will take the lawyer that was appointed for you. And Bobby Seale was like, this is my constitutional right to defend myself in court. And he continued to basically argue with the judge because he was right. And he knew he was right. The judge had him bound to his chair and gagged so that he, so that he wouldn't make any noise in court. And what were you like? You told me something like the, what was it, the... Weather Underground that was there that Abby Hoffman was a part of? Well, it wasn't the Weather Underground, but it was the... Um, oh, the like Chicago the Yippie, 8? The Yippie movement. Yeah, it was originally the Chicago 8, including Bobby, until the judge decided to, like, separate Bobby from the seven others who all happened to be white. And the judge, like, said in the beginning, like, you know, I want it clear that I am not... Because his last name was Hoffman, that <laughs> yeah. I'm not related to Abby Hoffman. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, why do you disown me? Why are you forsaking me? <laughs> um, yeah, it was like a, a three-ring circus with these... Uh, yippy hippie guys that were um, like I think two of them dressed up as a judge and when they got into the courtroom um, before 
the proceedings started, they like took off their judge robes and wiped the floors with them to show like <laughs> their contempt of court. And um, there were like just all these antics, like they were whispering amongst themselves and passing notes and talking shit about like the jurors that were supposed to be passing judgment on them, but they were like passing judgment on the jurors. Um, but Bobby's case, he was actually charged with, I think, 16 uh, charges of contempt of court when he was simply trying to have the rights that were legally and lawfully his by the U.S. Constitution. And fortunately, all of those charges were dropped. Otherwise, he would have spent four years in prison for simply speaking the truth. Um, all of the charges were dropped. And interestingly enough, the um, I think the lawyer, one of the one of the lawyers, I think it was the um, what is it the the court appointed lawyer guy. I think he was charged with something. So instead of Bobby being charged, like it ended up being that the other side was charged, and mm-hmm. it was said like that judge was um, known to be like a a real hard ass when it came to running his uh, his court. So, yeah, it's like he was making an example out of Bobby. And, my God, like, can you imagine witnessing this in court? This black man is being, ro- like, ropes tied around his um, his ankles and his wrists to hold him in the chair. And then they were, like, putting tape over his mouth. And then he said they used ace bandages because they could still hear him talking through the tape. He was still able to, like, say something, so they, like, wrapped his head with ace bandages so he wouldn't talk. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the lawyers were like, you know, Your Honor, at this point, um, this is just torture. Like, this isn't a, a court of law. This is just a torture chamber. But, yeah, so learning about the Black Panther Party really opened my eyes to not guess like that not judging a book by its cover if you just hear about like Huey Newton getting arrested for this or being convicted of that or Bobby Seale going you know to jail because of this or that you don't know the whole story I don't know the whole story and they probably don't even know the whole damn story because it's all you know behind the scenes FBI stuff but what I really appreciated too about learning what the Black Panther Party was doing was just how amazing it is to think before, you know, the internet, before uh, black people could could really, I mean, I mean, I know that there's a lot of stuff happening today in our society that is against black people. But back then, I mean, we're talking about like just rampant racism and uh, so many marks against them and to rise above that for your community to know that what you're doing may cause you to be killed, assassinated, murdered, or be put in prison. And I think I read that there are still 20 Black Panthers, I think that's the right number, that are still in prison to this day. Yeah, and Bobby Seals is still alive, right? Yeah, he's still alive. He's not, I believe, no, he's not in prison. He's a, an, an activist in, like, the Bay Area. And it sounds like you're like wrapping up. Did you? Were you going to talk about like what happened, what became of uh, Huey Newton? And uh, you said there was that one uh, quote from a girl or something she wrote that you really liked that you wrote down this morning. Yeah, I'm going to read that. 
Uh, well, I basically, I mean, I think I said my piece about um, Huey, and like I said, I don't really, I can't really focus on all the details of all the Black Panthers, like what happened to them and, and what they did. Um, you can read, you can learn about that online. Like, you've probably got more access to the internet than we do, so um, I just, you know, spoke my piece and said that none of us are saints. Um, you can make your decision as to if that person was good or bad. I don't really care about what charges or, or what they did in their lives that was uh, considered a bad thing. I'm looking at what they did that was good, that was revolutionary, that like really, I mean, it obviously, you know, led me to cry because we lost this amazing man. And who knows, maybe if Fred Hampton had lived, maybe he would have been the one that was addicted to cocaine and heroin and, like, you know, in jail for killing somebody. Because that's the kind of shit that happens to you when you are a leader of some movement. Yeah. And uh, I picked out the title for this episode because the first thing I heard about the Black Panthers um, that really inspired me and uh, still one of the most inspirational parts of this story is they would tell members when they joined, like, we are at war. Um, you know, we're fighting for something and we want to see it through. So you need to wrap your mind around the fact that you're going to probably wind up either dead or in prison. And I think about the people who want to resist nowadays, who are around me and wondering how to fight, what to do. And most of us, I feel like one of our biggest hurdles is we can't wrap our minds around that, that we have given ourselves to the fact that we will wind up dead, which you're going to wind up dead anyway, mm -hmm. but dead for a cause, maybe at the guns of uh, the authorities or in prison. Have your freedom taken away for that cause. So I just find that that goes through my head very often, um, you know, that that's what it means to fight civilization, fight the government, fight industrial society. Fight the powers that be. That the oh. end of your path is probably going to wind up you're dead or in prison. Um and yeah, three things that I leave with that story. Um, for one thing, that they're all humans. They're fallible humans. And uh, we can all be capable of anything. We've heard, I've heard some pretty bad things about Huey Newton. It sounds like he got pushed into some really bad drugs. Um, he's been accused of being abusive even by members of the Black Panther Party. Um, and there was a big schism. You know, it just kind of it started falling apart like so many things. That was designed by the COINTELPRO to create friction. Yeah. I mean, to me, the Black Panther Party both exemplifies the strength of coming together of numbers, like no one person could have done what they did, and they knew it. And also the weakness, mm -hmm. um, that you can be infiltrated, that you can have schisms within your own party, even before you get infiltrated by the people who are, you know, you're working with. Um, and I find just the whole story so instructive, because when I think about what they were trying to accomplish, I don't know how they could have done it better, you know? It's it's really remarkable what they accomplished. I also think about their good aims, you know, like those ten things you read, their aims, their their goals, um, feeding kids, uh, helping old people get to their doctor's appointments. My God, that's a movement. Mm -hmm. That's people who know what the hell they're doing, you know, who are really about the community, not just their own egos, and who are actually trying to build something better. And um, I also think about COINTELPRO. Imagine having the FBI, like all the things that happened to Huey Newton and so many of the other Black Panther parties, things they're condemned for. 
isn't it strange that that's exactly what COINTELPRO was trying to get to happen? Mm-hmm. Imagine being against the FBI. The FBI, who at that time, even politicians were scared of. There was nobody that was controlling the FBI. The FBI controlled themselves, mm-hmm. like the CIA. Everybody was scared of the FBI. They were like a huge, dark, malicious gang. Um. And just imagine them trying to fuck with your life, what they could do. So that softens my my criticism of whatever Huey Newton might have done, which, of course, we don't know because we hear about it through the filters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of my final words on it. All right. So I'm going to try and remember not to shut this off after I read this. But this is um, this is called Black Child's Pledge. And I wanted to share this because... Um, I think about a lot about tribalism and what what all that means as far as like, well, we're a tribe of like white people. And if you want to break it down even more, like you could be considered a tribe of like French people or French American or Franco American or um, uh, Polish American. You know what I'm saying? Like we've got tribes, but we don't uh, associate or affiliate with them. Black people, um, especially during the black power movement uh, of the 60s, and especially uh, with this Black Panther Party that we're talking about, there was a, a pledge that I feel like if you want to know what it's like to have pride in your tribe, to have this feeling of like tribal community, I just really like this. It was written by Shirley Williams, and it was printed in the Black Panther, like their newspaper, in October of 1968. Black Child's Pledge. I pledge allegiance to my black people. I pledge to develop my mind and body to the greatest extent possible. I will learn all that I can in order to give my best to my people in their struggle for liberation. I will keep myself physically fit, building a strong body, free from drugs and other substances which weaken me and make me less capable of protecting myself, my family, and my black brothers and sisters. I will unselfishly share my knowledge and understanding with them in order to bring about change more quickly. I will discipline myself to direct my energies thoughtfully and constructively rather than wasting them in idle hatred. I will train myself never to hurt or allow others to harm my black brothers and sisters, for I recognize that we need every black man, woman, and child to be physically, mentally, and psychologically strong. These principles I pledge to practice daily and to teach them to others in order to unite my people. Yeah, my God. I mean, if we all, like, had those pledges, you know, that for our own people, like, I feel like that's what we need is to come together as tribes and strengthen our own people and then work with the other tribes. Um, Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I just, I really like that sentiment because it just shows, like, what you can, what it can do for your community to to have pride and to really feel like you're together in this 
you can bring each other, you can raise up together or rise up together. So closing out this episode with a listener comment from Nicolas from Saint-Étienne, France. I'm so sorry, Nicholas. Um, he wrote this a while ago. This was from our Harrison through Coolidge U.S. Presidents Exposed podcast. He says, he said, psychic warfare, public relations, persuasion. And Nicholas, you're absolutely right. All of this has been going on for so long. I mean, this didn't even start with William Henry Harrison. This was before that. Um, and it's continuing. And as long as this government continues to um, exist, I, I don't know if it can be stopped. It's just, I think, inherent with the government. Yeah, if we've got a prayer, we need to uh, really pay attention to people like the Black Panthers and mm-hmm. see what worked. And if you have any comments about this episode or others, um, please write into us. We have a website, Escaping Society. Dot .weebly.com There's a comment form right on the front and uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Escaping Society and on our YouTube channel and all this can also be um, accessed through our website and we also have a donate button if you want to help Gumby buy a beer every now and then um, we or gas in the van or put gas in the van or beer um, yeah is there anything else I'm missing? um no, I mean, uh, there's so much more to be said. I'm sure as soon as I hit that stop button, I'm going to think of 12 things like, oh, oh, damn it. But we've gone so long, and maybe we will um, revisit some more of these interesting, fascinating parts of our history uh, in another podcast. Yep. Thanks for listening. <laughs>